Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, Oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. and welcome to this episode of Gone Medieval from History Hit. I'm Dr. Kat Jarman. Now, if you have a smartphone, you probably use Bluetooth technology for connecting wireless devices. And you may or may not know that this technology was named after the Danish king, Harald Bluetooth. And in fact, the little symbol on your phone is actually a combination of the runes H and B. And the reason why this name was chosen was that the technology is meant to gather and unite devices in the same way that Harald the King is credited with uniting the Kingdom of Denmark. But that's not all that that particular Bluetooth is known for. He was also credited with building an incredibly extensive and unique series of fortifications across Denmark. And only a few years ago, a brand new fortification, a ring fort, was discovered which may well have formed part of that same defensive system. So to take us back to 10th century Denmark, to Bluetooth and this exciting new discovery, I've invited one of those involved in finding and researching it, and that's Professor Søren Sinbeck from Aarhus University. So welcome, Søren. Thank you very much, Kat. So we're going to move on to this new discovery in a moment, but I thought it might be helpful just for the audience to get a bit more context behind it first and to understand why it's actually important and why we were all very excited about it when it appeared. Can you start with telling me a little bit about Harold Bluetooth and, and his background and the sort of dynasty that, that he was a part of? I can try. In fact, we don't know as much about those things as we would like to. I guess that's a case with many aspects of the Viking Age. But Harold Bluetooth is an enigma in some ways. If you read about the Viking Age in general, you see that there's one set of kings that turns up on big expeditions in Britain or Western Europe. And then there are other kings who tend to remain back in Scandinavia. So it's two different aspects of power in this period. And certainly in Denmark, we have sort of a row of kings who never turn out of the expedition because they're busy at home. And Harold is one of those. So he doesn't have any big known battles or conquests to his name. But all the more so, he's got exploits in Denmark that are very famous, especially if you're a Dane, because he's probably the Viking king that you know best from your school teaching. What's special about him is that he sort of left us with his own thoughts on himself in the great Yelling Runestone. He built a magnificent set of burial monuments in a small village called Yelling in the middle of Jutland that was probably intended to be sort of a dynastic gathering place. And in the middle of that, there is an enormous runestone 
beautifully carved with ornaments and also with a quite longish text where he states most of what we actually know definitely about him. He states that he was the son of another king, King Gorm, and he mentions his mother as well. So she must have been an important part of the story, although we're not quite sure how. But she's mentioned in several runestones, so she was a powerful lady in her own right. And then he mentions three things that he wants to be remembered for. He said that he was the herald who conquered all Denmark and Norway and made the Danish Christians. And that's about it. That's more or less what we know sort of as definite facts. Later historians have elaborated on that in very different ways because they have very different names. So we've got a set of German authors who are very keen to stress that this king was acting in accordance with or in, in obedience of the German emperors. And we've got other sources that suggest that he did no such thing, that he was a very independent ruler. So we have to make up our minds. And there's been endless discussions about every one of those aspects. What does it mean that he conquered Norway? What does it mean that he conquered all Denmark? And many believe that the bit about conquering all Denmark has to do with uniting the kingdom in the first place. That's why we get the Bluetooth device named after him. But it's actually more likely that what he means is that he won an existing kingdom in competition with others. So he mentions there's some kind of power struggle and he came out successful. That's probably what the inscription is meant to say. And that would be the same story that a number of other Viking kings could have told us. Just remember the Viking kings of England, Knut and, and Swain. They won a kingdom. They didn't unite England. They won a kingdom for themselves. And that's probably what he's telling us. So he didn't come to his kingdom just by hereditary right. But he does mention his father, so there was also hereditary right there. And then the interesting bit about making the Danes Christian. Now, that's quite a big thing to change the religion of a country and its people. And at least that's one point that different sources agree on. And we can see that although it's probably a bit of a protracted process, there is a definite change of religion. We can see it most clearly in the burials, of course, where elaborate furnished burials that you need for going to Valhalla or anyway to the realm of death in pre-Christian beliefs, they stop in Denmark. And instead, we get over the next couple of generations, the first churches and the first Christian burial grounds, except for the small burial grounds that existed around in the Viking towns, where, of course, there was a mixed population already. So he did something. And we think today that we know some of what that was about, because we have contemporary mentions in continental sources that tells us both about an act of conviction, that the king experienced a miracle enacted by a priest and decided that Christ had to be a bigger god than the Nordic gods. And there's also a hint of a political situation for this, because another source tells us that about this time, there was an alliance forming between the Saxons in the north of Germany and the Danes, and the representative of the German emperor had to act quickly. And there's a suggestion that Harold actually got his conversion on very favorable terms. There was no demand that he adhered to the church hierarchy, that he had his bishops appointed by an important archbishop's see in Germany or elsewhere. So he was pretty free to choose the terms of his conversion. All of this is what we know from the written sources, including the Yelling Runestone. But what has made Harold particularly famous then in modern times are the monuments that we're going to speak about today, the ring fortresses. And they're really just an archaeological discovery. 
that whole story has been unraveled over the past 80, 90 years through archaeological discoveries and has painted a new picture of our world and also put some of these other deeds in a new perspective. How precisely do we know what time he lived? Do we have any any good dates for his rule? Some historians have given dates because we like to have dates. So normally we say that he must have reigned from probably 959. That date is actually an archaeological date because it's the date when the burial chamber was closed in the Yelling Monuments in the grave that we believe is the grave for Gorm, Harold's father and predecessor. And the normal date given for the end of his reign is 987. But both of those states, of course, like so many things in early history, are contested. If you had asked a generation ago, some people or many people would have said that Harold ruled since the 930s, because one source has that, and others would have argued that he died earlier. But roughly, the dates that are provided now are the most likely ones. We hear about him in a contemporary source for the first time around 961-62, and he was on the scene definitely until the beginning of the 980s. But the exact year might still not be known. I think that highlights quite a good point that there is a lot of new research happening all the time. So actually, even just 10 years ago, we had quite a different picture. And we'll get more to that when we hear about the new discovery. But let's move on to these fortifications that he's known for then. So can you can you start by just telling us about the ring forts more generally, the, the ones we've known about for a long time? Sure. So in the 1930s, Danish archaeologists came upon a very odd site in Western Zealand, the big island in Denmark. Nobody knew at the time what it was. It was visible in the landscape as a big ring structure. And the best guess was that it was a medieval castle or remains of the fortifications from it. But as the first excavations were conducted, it became quickly clear that this was actually a Viking Age foundation. And it became a big enigma because nobody had imagined that anyone in the Scandinavian Viking Age could have organized a work of this magnitude. This was an earthen timber fortress with circular ramparts that had a diameter of more than 150 meters. It had had great big wooden halls in a grid pattern in the inside, 16 of them, 30 meters long each of them. The rampart would have stood to a height of at least four or five meters, perhaps more. It had a ditch that was 18 meters wide. So this was a huge and very organized piece of military architecture, something like what you would expect from the Roman army, but not from a bunch of Vikings. So there was big discussions about what all this was about. And originally, there were many suggestions that it had to be something foreign. Perhaps, after all, the German emperor did come to Denmark and built something like it. That was what historians could imagine in the 1930s. This site, Trelleborg in Schelland, became famous in the 1930s, but also a big enigma. But the real breakthrough happened over the next 20 years when three more sites of the same scale and the same organization appeared elsewhere in Denmark, two of them in Jutland and one on the island of Funen. And they were so similar that they had to belong to a common system. It was not just a ring fortress and the size of that. It was that everything was laid out very meticulously to a geometrical pattern. The ring fortress was not just a ring. It was a perfect circle. There were four gates that were laid out exactly at right angles. And there were the buildings in the inside, these great big wooden halls that were laid out in courtyards of four, all with very minimal deviation from a strict grid pattern. 
So all of this organization underlined the first discovery from Trellebork that this was something that was undertaken with a great deal of control. But even more, that this was a control that extended to every major province of the Danish kingdom. So it was something that was not just an individual power base. This was a network of power. And that's what still today is distinctive and intriguing about these fortresses. There are lots of earthworks from the early Middle Ages across all parts of Northern Europe. But what was distinctive about this set is that they were clearly planned and executed according to a master plan. Subsequently, two more sites were discovered in Skåne in southern Sweden that are probably part of the same group. They've never been investigated quite to the same extent, but it's likely that one or both belong to the same group of fortifications. But after that, nothing really happened for a long time in Denmark. The existing sites were investigated and published over several decades, and new facts emerged. One very important discovery came around 1980 when it became possible to apply tree ring datings, dendrochronological dating, to some timbers found at Trelleborg and one of the Jutland sites called Fjörkat. And they were a big surprise because initially these constructions had been connected to the conquest of England. We had on one side, of course, some very unusual military structures, and then we knew from written sources that there was a very unusual event. So it was tempting for historians and archaeologists to combine the two and said that these had to be the training camps that had been used for the army that went and conquered England. But what came out of the dendrochronological dates was that the fortresses were much older than the campaigns to England. They were built around 980 and not around the year 1000 and after that when the big expeditions came to England. So they had to fit entirely different place in history. And they also had to belong to a different king. It was not Swain Forkbeard who ruled around the year 1000. It was his predecessor, Harold Bluetooth. And that really became the basis of the story that we know today, that these were monuments that were not built there to contain Viking armies, but for some different purpose. And what that purpose was, was really the discussion for many years among archaeologists and historians. Could it be either that these were monuments that were trying to control the regions in perhaps a newly united kingdom, as many thought the Yellingstone to say? Or was it rather a defense? Did they express a situation of crisis where it was necessary to protect a population? What bothered me and other researchers that were investigating the sites was that if you were to imagine that there was a plan behind their location, it always seemed that there were too few sites to protect anything seriously. There were many important regions that were left without any coverage, so to speak. So it was, if it was a Bluetooth network, then it was very patchy. And this is where the discovery that we're going to talk more about today took off. So, okay, so you actually... It wasn't just a a sort of lucky accident. It was actually looking at the distribution and thinking where, if you were to have any more of them, where would you look? So it's a kind of way it makes sense in the landscape. Was that how it started? That's exactly how it started. About 10 years ago, we were in the process of finalizing the grand final publication of the biggest of the previously known fortresses, which is called Agersborg, and it's located in the north of Jutland. There had been big excavations there in the 1940s and 50s, but they'd never been published because the excavator died shortly after the the excavations. So we were bringing all this together and 
got to understand a lot about not just the site at Argusburg, but also about the ring fortresses more generally. And what we kept coming back to in the team that were on those investigations, including Elsa Rostal, who's a Viking scholar that many people will know from her great book about the Vikings. But what we kept coming back to was this enigma that if they were to be a meaningful defense system, there were too few. And at one point, I started systematically to try and gather what would be the options if we were to look for more. And in some sense, I did that with some reluctance because in the years after the four classical Danish ring fortresses were discovered, there were so many attempts to find more. And it almost became a joke in Danish archaeology that somebody had or believed to have found a new ring fortress. Many museums will get contacted by amateur archaeologists and historians who think they, they know where a new one was. So it's not exactly a thing you do lightly. And I remember after having set up my list, the place that intrigued me the most was the eastern coast of Sealand, the large island where Copenhagen is located which was a rich province. We knew that it had been densely populated in late prehistoric and early medieval times. And there was at least one very obvious location that was the same kind of spot in the landscape where the other fortresses were located, close to a fjord or inlet where you could land on the coast and also strategically located at crossings of major old land routes. And I remember coming to a conference where a colleague from the regional museum of that region was present. Her name is Nana Holm. And with a bit of reluctance, I called Nana over coffee and said, you know, I know this sounds crazy, but could we have a talk? Because I think that there might be an undiscovered Trelleborg Green Fortress in your area. And I was prepared for a great laugh. But instead, she just looked at me and said, yes, it's at Kuru. And I couldn't believe that. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Afua Hirsch. I'm Peter Frankopan. And in our podcast, Legacy, we explore the lives of some of the biggest characters in history. This season, we're exploring the life of Cleopatra. An iconic life full of romances, sieges and tragedy. But who was the real Cleopatra? It feels like her story's been told by others with their own agenda for centuries. But her legacy is enduring, and so we're going to dive into how her story has evolved all the way up to today. I am so excited to talk about Cleopatra, Peter. Love Cleopatra. She is an icon. She's the most famous woman in antiquity. It's got to be up there with the most famous woman of all time. But I think there's a huge gap between how familiar people are with the idea of her compared to what they actually know about her life and character. So for Pyramids, Cleopatra and Cleopatra's Nose. Follow Legacy Now wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can binge entire seasons early and ad-free on Wondery+. Plus. Hold up. 
Hello, if you're enjoying this podcast, then I know you're going to be fascinated by the new episodes of the History Hit Warfare podcast, from the Napoleonic battles and Cold War confrontations to the Normandy landings and 9-11. We reveal new perspectives on how war has shaped and changed our modern world. I'm your host, James Rogers, and each week, twice a week, I team up with fellow historians, military veterans, journalists, and experts from around the world to bring you inspiring leaders. If the crossroads had fallen, then what Napoleon would have achieved is he would have severed the communications between the Allied force and the Prussian force, and there wouldn't have been a Waterloo. It would have been as simple as that. Revolutionary technologies. At the time the weapons were tested, there was this perception of great risk and great fear during the arms race that meant that these countries disregarded these communities' health and well-being to pursue nuclear weapons instead. And war-defining strategies. It's as though the world is incapable of finding a moderate light presence. It always wants to either swamp the place in trillion dollar wars or it wants to have nothing at all to do with it. And in relation to a country like Afghanistan, both approaches are catastrophic. Join us on the History Hit Warfare podcast, where we're on the front line of military history. Was it the same place that you were thinking it might be as well? So you'd had the same thoughts? <laughs> I think we were at different scales in the landscape. I knew that the former fjord, it's now a river valley due to tectonic processes, it's dry land, but it was a former fjord. It was certainly the old central landing place on the eastern coast of Shetland, next to a medieval town called Kyrie. So I thought it had to be somewhere around there. But Nana, knowing the landscape in closer detail, was aware that about a year previously, the first national LIDAR data, that's a new remote sensing technique that became available about that time, where you measure the height of the landscape in very great detail using an airborne laser. And that data had become available as showing very minute differences in height in the landscape. And Nana had noticed that at the end of the fossil fjord that could there was a peculiar ring. And when I asked her, that sprang to her mind. So we went looking at the site. And where you were in the landscape, there was nothing really that you would notice. If you knew what to look for, you could see this very slight rise. We're talking about perhaps height differences of no more than 25, 30 centimeters. Because obviously, after a thousand years of agriculture, this site was entirely plowed out. It's some of the best agricultural soil in Shetland, so it's been leveled at some point and, and plowed out since. But we could see that there was something. And that's where the next important step came in, because at that time, I had been for several years a lecturer in the department in York University in the UK. And one thing that I had learned a lot about while I was there was the use of uh, geophysical surveys which has not been very popular until recently in Scandinavia, in part because it can give ambiguous results and some of the Danish soils are not very good for the techniques that we have available. But we had done some experiments at Augsburg using what's called a gradiometer, which measures really, really minute differences in the magnetic signal that you get from the soil. And they are conditioned by things like whether there were once spirit wood that has drawn out the iron particles in the soil, or whether there has been major earthworks with materials dug up or deposited. 
So I knew that there was a potential for this technique. And after some discussion, I managed to persuade both Nana and the museum that we had to try this. So we brought a colleague from York, Helen Goodshield, who was an expert in this method. And really, in one day, we surveyed the whole site. And it's one of the most incredible days in my career because we could see literally hour by hour how this beautiful circle image formed in our mapping. And when we set out on that morning, we had discussed the odds and we agreed that perhaps it was a 10% chance that it was what we were looking for. And if it was something else, that was fine. We'd be interested in that as well. But when at the end of that day, we felt absolutely certain that that was the only thing this could be. There was nothing that was so meticulously circular from any other period of prehistory. That's a really, I mean, I should emphasise that, that this isn't something that happens very often in archaeology. Most of the time we go out and, and we spend an awful long time and we, we really don't find what we're looking for. So, so that is in itself a really fantastic discovery. But more fieldwork took place after that as well. Can you talk us through some of the discoveries that you made and and whether you were able to actually date any of it? Yeah, that was the next question because it was one thing that we were convinced. I remember showing our results to colleagues and they, they just couldn't believe it. They agreed with us that they could think of nothing else that this could be, but couldn't really believe that this was true. And this was in 2013, and we decided to keep our heads calm and wait until 2014 when we were allowed to conduct a small-scale investigation at the site. And if we had jumped to excavation in the first place, I think there's a great chance that we would not have realized, or at least we would not have been able to prove anything serious, because how on earth are you going to understand a site which is perhaps 150 by 150 meters by digging small holes, or even by stripping the whole field and and ruining a lot of the archaeology. But because we had the geophysical map, we could target very exactly some areas that we wanted to investigate. So the first small trench we cut, we could establish that the rampart did in fact have timber constructions, as it was supposed to. The second small cut we made, we were able to hit right on one of the fortress gates. That was what we were trying to, but it was just amazing to hit and get confirmed just what you had hoped for. And then came the big test, because we all agreed that if this was a Trelleborg fortress, it should respect that strict geometry. So it should be possible to point on the map and say, a 90 degrees to the east of our fortress gate here, there should be another on exactly this spot. And using our GPS, we could set up ranging rods in the landscape saying, this is where we believe exactly here is the fortress gate. And we got the mechanical digger to the spot and it cut, I think, just two by two meters. And there it was. That was when we actually announced the discovery. And it got headlines in the Danish press, but it also got headlines worldwide. And we had three very nerve-wracking months waiting for the dating results because they had not been obtained yet. We had obtained charcoal that we could use for radiocarbon dating. But for some reason, it just took ages to get the results. And I remember the day when the email dropped in in my inbox saying, here are your results from the radiocarbon dating. I said, okay, now I'm going to click on this mail and either this will make or it will break my career. 
And I clicked on it and there it was bang on. It was the 10th century date. Fantastic. It's kind of spine-tingling stuff, isn't it? Because I think this is just such a, a great combination of both. It's the knowledge, isn't it? It's the knowledge of those fortresses. So both the location, what they looked like, but then also marrying that with the new technology that actually allowed you to spot it in the first place and then applying that all together. An absolutely fantastic result, really. And then have you, did you do any more excavations after that or, or, or was that it? So this was 2014. And now, of course, followed a few months with big discussions. And um, they were big discussions. This got up in a lot of public attention. And there were many people who still just couldn't believe it and thought that there had to be some other explanation. So we were told in newspapers and on internet discussion forums that we got it wrong. It couldn't be a Viking <laughs> fortress. And then funnily enough, we were told at the same time that it was a Viking fortress and people had known about it all the while because the earthwork had been recorded in a national database. It had just not been dated or understood. So when that calmed down, luckily people had, had accepted that it was a new important monument. I remember the, the time that it really sank into me was when I was in my kid's school and the math teacher came to me and said, do you know what you've done? And I said, no, I don't know what I've done. And he said, you know, we have these math books and they're teaching multiplication by this example that we've got four fortresses and they've got four courtyards with four houses. And now you've wrecked that. <laughs> so uh, I, I sometimes joke that lots of people have rewritten the history books, but I've rewritten the math books. But it also meant that we could apply and we got money from a big foundation that was ready to support further research. And we had three seasons of fieldwork there, 2016 to 18, which brought us a lot of new discoveries there. And it was quite an interesting way to do fieldwork because the excavations were open to the public as we went along. And they had a small visitor center there and people could just come and see what we were doing. There were two guided tours a day. So we had tens of thousands of people looking over our shoulders. But while we were doing that, we actually found out lots of, of great new stuff about the site. And, um, and that's what's just been published in four papers that came out a few weeks ago in a journal called Journal of Danish Archaeology. We thought we'd put them together so that the knowledge is assembled in one place and people can find it. Because there's really many different kinds of new information there. We excavated in the fortress, we found artifacts and we found more about the earthworks and what was there. But there was also very important uh, investigations in the surroundings that taught us more about the location of this site. And I think that's just as important as anything we found on the fortress. So let's just finish off, I think, with going back to, to some of what we talked about at the beginning. So you were talking about the, the context of this and the fact that these are very unique, but they're also they are very clearly centrally organised. So they're, they're sort of by presumably Bluetooth, if we think that that is correct, putting in all this effort, which is very unusual for the Viking Age. It's not something that we see. Do we have any idea of both where he got his inspiration from, but also how he got the funds for that sort of thing? Because surely there's a lot of effort and or, you know, money really involved in, um, in, in producing them. Well, I think what the new excavations have contributed is, well, in the first place, more details about what that effort really was. So on one hand, we can see that Borkring was very lavishly projected in some way. The site that was chosen in the landscape was not quite perfect for the monument that was intended. So they just leveled a lot of ground and extended the building lot. That's something you do if you've got a lot of manpower on your hand. And it had to be 
just specifically so it couldn't be slightly smaller or a different shape. It had to be just like that. So we're really dealing with a very set plan and very confident use of resources. On the other hand, we we're a bit surprised to see from environmental archaeology what was the impact of this, because we have speculated in the past that they had to cut down the forests in a huge area to build such a site. And what we learned by detailed modeling was that it was actually not such a big area that needed to be involved. Much of the soil for the ramparts could be collected within perhaps as little as 800 meters from the structure. And it would have taken only a few hectares of forest, which is, of course, quite a bit of work, but it's not something that changes the landscape massive. So we, we got a much better idea about the scale of this work. And in the end, what's concerned when you want to build a ring fortress like that is likely, we think now, to be something like what perhaps a thousand people could do in three or four weeks. So it now looks as if what's happening here is a king commandeering people to a site for a relatively short period. In some cases, it might have been done on two or three occasions. It's possible that, for instance, the Trelleborg Fortress was built in two goes. But it's likely to be something that's special purpose. It's not, let's say, a standing force who works for years. It's what happens either in a crisis situation or in a conquest situation. So that's what we're dealing with. And that leaves two scenarios still that we're working with. One is the conquest scenario, which works for the people who still believe that there was a sort of conquest of the Danish provinces. If that's the case, then we would picture a situation where the king arrives with an army and commandeers, presumably all the farms to bring out the thralls, their slaves, to do earthwork and digging and build this new stronghold. Alternatively, we could also think of this as a more defensive act where these resources are being rushed out because there is an imminent danger. And I would say at present, both these options are still possible. But there's one point which makes me think that the Borkwing Fortress was more likely to have been a defensive measure. And that's the fact that for what we can see from the new excavations, it was not finished in the way that Trelleborg and Fürkert was. If it was intended to have these big buildings, it never got them. That could, of course, be because the building project was disrupted and it was never completed. But if you're talking about something that happens within a couple of weeks, I don't think that's so likely. Either you can start this and, and substantially complete it to your plan, or you wouldn't start at all. So I think the most likely scenario here is that somebody is putting this up because there is an imminent danger. And if we look at the few sources that we have, there's actually a good case for that, I think. Because we can see that in the 970s, after at least a decade where Harold could have reigned in great confidence, and we can see he does, he builds the great yelling monuments in that period. He builds a huge defensive rampart at the southern border of Denmark, where he actually incorporates the big trading town Heatherby into his realm. Previously, it was sort of an, in a no man's land. Then we know that suddenly the German emperor got very interested in his northern boundary and actually brought an army that was apparently successful in at least one battle. We don't know much about the details. But that, of course, would have brought the Danish king into a completely different situation in relation to his provinces and in relation to all the other powerhouses and rulers in the region. 
So I think that the most likely scenario we can suggest today for Borgring and these ring fortresses, which were built at exactly this time in the second half of the 1970s, is that they were meant to show to his population that he was in charge and he was ready to defend them against anyone who could arrive with a fleet at just the spots where such a fleet would land, because that's where the ring fortresses are generally located. I think that sounds like a a very convincing argument there. So we'll see what any future work might bring up. Do you think there's a chance of finding more of these ring fortresses now that you've got quite a good methodology for searching for them? I think there is a chance. And in fact, I would have thought that we had found new ring fortresses by now, if you'd asked me five years ago. And there's certainly been lots of places suggested. We haven't had the next confirmed site, but there are one or two places where it would be quite likely that they would have been built. Some of those locations are in the middle of later medieval towns and may be very difficult to investigate. But I think that there is still something for archaeologists of the future to discover. So we are all just desperately waiting for you to find some more. We're sort of half really jealous and wishing it were us looking and finding these things, but also really happy that there's so much optimism for finding new sites and making new understandings of it. So thank you so much for joining uh, me here today, Søren. That was a pleasure. And if you want to find out more, you can just Google Søren's research and look for Borgring and all of this research is available as open access. You can, you can get to the academic research articles if you'd like to. And can you go and visit many of these sites? Most of them. Borkring is closed at the moment, but there are great museums at Trelleborg and at Fürkert. Fantastic. So when people can travel again, they can go to Denmark and, and, and check them out. Now, thank you all for listening to this episode of Gone Medieval by History Hit. I'm Dr. Kat Jarman, and I hope you'll tune in to the next episode. My co-host Matt Lewis will be here with new content on Saturday, and I'll be back again next Tuesday. If you haven't already, subscribe to Gone Medieval from History Hit so you don't miss any of our crucial medieval information. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Thank you for listening to this episode of Gone Medieval. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us out and you'll be doing me a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com forward slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use the code MEDIEVAL at checkout.